Well, how do we respond to a world at war? In 1 Timothy chapter 2, we receive the following instruction. It says this, First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings, and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good. And it is pleasing in the sight of God, our Savior. We are to pray for governing authorities, for, for kings, for presidents, for dictators. Christians in Ukraine this week are, are pleading with the world to pray for them, describing our prayers as their weapon in the times of war. But what specifically are we to pray for? When I sit down to pray for President Biden, or for Volodymyr Zelensky, the president of the Ukraine, or for Vladimir Putin, the president of Russia, what should I pray? The First Timothy 2 passage doesn't give all that much to go on. Clearly from the text, we are, we are to pray that these rulers would be instruments of peace in general and specifically in regard to the religious liberty necessary for Christians like the Apostle Paul and, and Timothy and, and like us to lead peaceful and quiet lives, godly and dignified in every way, that, that we may openly share the gospel of Christ with our neighbors without fear of imprisonment or violence. Okay, so we're to pray for peace, we're to pray for religious liberty, but what else can we pray? I'd like you to turn with me to Psalm 72. This is a prayer for a king, a ruler of people. You can find it on page 553 in the first half of the Pew Bible, near the middle. Psalm 72 begins with um, these first seven verses that I'll read aloud. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. Hear the word of the Lord to you. Of Solomon, give the king your justice, O God, and your righteousness to the royal son. May he judge your people with righteousness and your poor with justice. Let the mountains bear prosperity for the people and the hills in righteousness. May he defend the cause of the poor of the people, give deliverance to the children of the needy, and crush the oppressor. May they fear you while the sun endures, and as long as the moon throughout all generations. May he be like rain that falls on the mown grass, like showers that water the earth. In his days, may the righteous flourish and peace abound to the moon be no more. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for the gift of your word to us. By the Holy Spirit, apply your word to our hearts, that our hearts would be further aligned with your heart, that we would increasingly become your instruments of justice, righteousness, and peace. Father, bless the preaching of your word. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Well, I hope you'll keep your Bible open in front of you as we'll be jumping around the 20 verses of this psalm in order to, to pull on the main threads that are woven together throughout it. Verse 1, Give the king your justice, O God, and your righteousness to the royal son. May he judge your people with righteousness and your poor with justice. Notice this, it's not just let the king rule in justice and righteousness, but rather may the king possess the justice and righteousness of God himself. 
These two Hebrew words for, for justice and righteousness are, are combined as a word pair throughout the Scriptures to speak primarily of the character of God. But then beyond that, the word pair, justice and righteousness, is, is used throughout Scripture also to describe what it looks like for people created in His image to, to bear that image rightly, to, to reflect His image, His justice and righteousness. Specifically in regard to, to how we re- relate to one another, how we relate to all those likewise created by Him and for Him and in His image. Justice and righteousness. For example, in Genesis chapter 18, verse 19, all of God's people are commanded to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice. Proverbs 21, verse 3 says, to do righteousness and justice is more acceptable to the Lord than sacrifice and other forms of worship, doing justice and righteousness. This word pair is especially emphasized in Scripture in regard to governing authorities. A nation whose rulers fail to rule with justice and righteousness cannot prosper. This is one of the key findings of a recent work, the book Poverty of Nations by economist Barry Asmus and theologian Wayne Grudem. A nation whose rulers fail to rule with justice and righteousness cannot prosper. Skipping ahead to verse 4. May he defend the cause of the poor of the people. May he give deliverance to the children of the needy. May he crush the oppressor. May they, that the citizens of his land, fear you, God, while the sun endures, and as long as the moon throughout all generations. A governing authority, a ruler who rules with the justice and righteousness of God, rightly spreads the fear of God in the hearts of the people. For governing authorities have been designed and instituted by God to be, quote, God's servant for your good. They do not bear the sword in vain. The Apostle Paul puts it, Romans chapter 13, verse 4. The Apostle Peter describes governing authorities as being sent by God to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good, 1 Peter 2, 14. This fear of God, it should begin with those in power, for they will be judged for how they exercise the authority that God has bestowed upon them. The psalm further describes what God requires of a ruler in verse, verse 12. Verse 12, for, for he delivers the needy when he calls, the poor and him who has no helper. He has pity on the weak and the needy and saves the lives of the needy. From oppression and violence, he redeems their life and precious is their blood in his sight. The lives of the people are, are precious to a just and righteous ruler. Recognizing the, the worth of all people regardless of whether they are rich or poor, powerful or weak, in the majority or in a minority, he cannot stand to see their blood spilt in violence. We don't need to turn to the history books in order to understand humanity's desperate need for a just and righteous ruler to protect the weak and to punish the wicked, do we? We simply need to look at the world around us seems that humans have proven that we are incapable of establishing a civilization and a government that is entirely free of corruption and oppression. Whether it's the, the Russians invading Ukraine in an evil war of aggression out of a grotesque thirst for power, 
or whether it's the, the Islamic extremists throughout the Middle East and throughout Africa, determined to, to kill anyone who will not adopt their particular form of Islam, which we pray about almost weekly as we turn our attention to Christians persecuted around the world, or whether it's the Buddhists attempting to eradicate the, the Rohingya Muslims from Myanmar, or the athe- atheistic communists attempting to eradicate Christians and others of faith from China and from North Korea, or whether it's the, the oftentimes more subtle forms of prejudice and oppression and cronyism within our own nation, we ought to be well acquainted with this deep-seated yearning for a just and righteous king who will rule without prejudice and greed, without seeking to enrich themselves and their wealthy friends. In our constitutional democratic system of government with elected officials, just as these officials must exercise the authority entrusted to them in the fear of the Lord, so too we must exercise the authority entrusted to us, the governing authority in the form of our vote, in the fear of the Lord. For we will be held accountable for how we wield this measure of authority bestowed upon us, for all authority comes from God. As we evaluate candidates for office, we must strive to see through the the propaganda, to see through the sensationalism designed to to play off of our emotions. We have to ask ourselves whether these candidates are are fighting the right battles. They can't get elected if they're they're not presenting themselves as fighting one battle or another, and they, they all present themselves as defenders of the people's rights, at least someone's rights, over against the evil oppressors who are seeking to violate those rights. We have to ask, are the rights they're fighting for the ones that have actually been given by God? Or is the candidate's talk of rights simply a way of telling people what they want to hear, encouraging them to to do whatever they please, regardless of the oppressive consequences upon others, upon their neighbors, the deleterious effect upon society as a whole? Are these candidates concerned with, with genuine victims of oppression, or merely with gaining power by encouraging more and more people to view themselves as victims, and to view their neighbors as their oppressors? Is the blood of the weak and the needy precious in their sight? Are they fighting to be a voice for the voiceless? Are we? Proverbs 31 verse 8 says, Speak up for those who cannot speak for themselves. Ensure justice for those who are being crushed. Surely the most egregious form of someone who cannot speak being crushed is the more than 2,400 lives of voiceless babies intentionally crushed in their mother's wombs every day in our nation. Stand up. Speak for those who cannot speak for themselves. Ensure justice for those who are being crushed. Every nation in every age is equally in desperate need of just and righteous rulers who fear God. You spread that fear among their citizens. Having prayed for a just and righteous king in verses 1 and 2, listen to the blessings that then flow from such a righteous reign. Verse 3, let the mountains bear prosperity, shalom for the people, and the hills, righteousness. Verse 6, may he, the king, be like rain that falls on the mown grass. Picture it like showers that water the earth. In his days may the righteous flourish and and peace abound till the moon be no more. 
Verse 16, may there be abundance of grain in the land, and on the tops of mountains may it wave. May its fruits be like the trees of Lebanon, and, and may people blossom in the cities like the grass of the field. Given a righteous rain, notice what blossoms in the cities. It's people. This draws our attention back to the creation mandate given to humanity in the Garden of Eden. The command to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and extend humanity's dominion across the face of the earth. So that the entire world might be enveloped with people bearing God's image, worshiping him like grass covers the field. These are the blessings that flow from a just and righteous ruler. And so we, we must, we should daily pray for these blessings, for our nation and for all the nations of the world. But the more time that we spend looking at the world and praying these kinds of prayers, the more we begin to grieve over the lack of any perfectly just, righteous, and, and trustworthy rulers. The more we grieve over the lack of the blessings that would flow from them. And to a degree, that's the point of the psalm. We're clued into this point right from the start. Notice the superscription that begins the psalm, of Solomon. That's not a heading that was added later to your English Bible. That's part of the Hebrew poem. We tend to read these superscriptions as the identification of the author. But while it may be that it was written by Solomon, it could instead mean that it was written for Solomon or, or otherwise about Solomon. If it was written for Solomon, the most likely author would be his father, King David the second king to rule over the nation of Israel, the, the first king to set up his throne in Jerusalem. As David saw his own death drawing near in 1 Kings chapter 1, he personally anointed his son Solomon to be his successor. Jump down to the, the last verse of the psalm, Psalm 20. There we find a postscript which serves to close the, the second book of Psalms, Psalms 42 through 72. The postscript says this, The prayers of David, the son of Jesse, are ended. Okay, so that would make it appear as though David was the author, but honestly, this could be taken to mean that all of the 72 preceding psalms will ultimately be fulfilled through a king who will descend from David. Not, not that he was necessarily the author of those psalms. Some of them are attributed to have been written by others. So regardless of who wrote Psalm 72, the, the superscription of Solomon, the postscript, the Psalms of David, and the subject of the prayer in verse 1, the royal son, all of this serves to draw our attention to a son of David who would sit on the throne of Israel after him. In other words, it's a messianic psalm, meaning it's about the promised Messiah to come from the line of David. More precisely, it's a prayer that the Davidic covenant be fulfilled. As David began to, to lead the people of Israel in his day, they were given a measure of victory over their enemies, and they began to experience a measure of peace in the land that God had promised to their forefather Abraham, the father of that nation. At the end of his life, God made a promise to David. We see it in 2 Samuel, verse 7. God made a promise to David that after David died, God would raise up David's offspring after him, and grant him an eternal kingdom in which the people of God would thrive on the earth and suffer no more. Now clearly, David's son Solomon was not that promised offspring. 
Solomon violated God's commands against taking unbelieving wives, and he turned from worshiping God to instead worshiping the false gods of his many wives, 1 Kings 11, thus provoking God's judgment upon the nation of Israel, dividing it in two. Descendant after descendant of David and Solomon, king after king came and died, having failed to unite God's people under a truly just and righteous reign. No justice, no righteousness, and thus no peace and prosperity. But God keeps his promises. God keeps his promises. And so from the time of Solomon, any time this messianic psalm was read or sung, it was a prayer for the promised Messiah to come. And those prayers were answered. The descendant of David has come, the Lord Jesus Christ. And unlike any human before him and any human since him, he did live a perfect, righteous life. He's described as being the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of God's nature. He perfectly bears the image of his heavenly father. But the people of his generation didn't honor him as God's anointed king, much less as the ruler of all creation. Instead, they felt threatened by him, and so they had him put to death. Instead of seating him on a throne, they they nailed him to a tree. Instead of bowing before him and calling him blessed, they spit on him and called him a liar. And he suffered a horrific death. But God keeps his promises. And so God raised him from the dead. Hundreds of people witnessed this resurrected king walking on the earth before he ascended to the right hand of the Father 40 days later. And since that day, thousands upon thousands of people have come to know peace with God by submitting to Christ's righteous rule over their lives, trusting in him for the forgiveness of their sins and committing to follow him, to follow his teachings, to embrace his mission. Now, yes, his much-anticipated earthly reign of divine justice and righteousness has not yet come. And thus, neither have the resulting blessings of earthly peace and prosperity. Shalom. But God keeps his promises. And so, like many believers who longingly awaited for his first coming, we who longingly await for his second coming, pray the prayer of Psalm 72, knowing that one day our prayers will be answered. With this understanding of who and what exactly we're praying for, listen again to the language of verse 7. In his days may the righteous flourish and peace abound till the moon be no more. In other words, may his days, his peace-giving reign last forever. The psalmist, whoever wrote it, is taking the promise of an eternal Davidic kingdom and throne in 2 Samuel chapter 7, and applying that eternality to the life of the king himself. May his reign be forever. And not only will the righteous reign of the messianic king be eternal, for he is eternal, it will be universal, meaning it will cover the entire earth. Verse 8, may he have dominion from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. May desert tribes bow down before him and his enemies lick the dust. May the kings of Tarshish and of the coastlands render him tribute. May the kings of Sheba and Seba bring gifts. May all kings fall down before him. All nations serve him. This dwarfs the extent of King David or King Solomon's empires. 
It dwarfs the great Egyptian and Assyrian and Babylonian and, and Roman empires. It even dwarfs the great British empire of the early 20th century, believed to have been the largest empire of world history. For Christ's kingdom will envelop the entire earth, and thus the creation mandate will be complete. God's vision for creation announced in Genesis chapter 1 will be fulfilled, for humanity's peaceful dominion will extend to the ends of the earth, a world covered with worshipers of God, dwelling aside one another in perfect harmony, under the benevolent rule of the King of Kings. With humanity's creation mandate completed, the entire earth will become a great temple where God himself dwells with mankind as their king, the risen Lord, Jesus Christ. As Ali read earlier from Revelation 21, the apostle John was given a vision of a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. And John heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who is seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. The curse of sin and death that hangs so heavy upon our world will be lifted. For Christ has succeeded where Adam and Eve and David and Solomon and all the rest of humanity have failed. For he lived a perfectly righteous life. Notice the first words of verse 12 again. Verse 12. For, so you've got the eternal reign of the righteous king and the universal reign of the righteous king. Why? For, because he delivers the needy when he calls. The poor and him who has no helper. He has pity on the weak and the needy and saves the lives of the needy. From oppression and violence, he redeems their life, and precious is their blood in his sight. In other words, it's because he rules in righteousness that his reign will have no end and no boundaries. The eternality and the universality of the reign of the royal son come as a result of him reigning as God rules with perfect justice and righteousness, for he is God the Son. The reason that the promised kingdom is so glorious and we long for it so much is because the king is so glorious. The blessings of his kingdom flow out of the king who rules it. So as we pray this prayer, as we celebrate his justice and righteousness and the many blessings that flow from it, we begin to wonder what that will mean for us. In verse 7 we pray, In his days may the righteous flourish. Will that include you? Can you be counted among the righteous or will you be counted among his enemies? We'll be forced to lick the dust in verse 9. The oppressor who will be crushed in verse 4. There is no neutrality in the causes of justice and righteousness. You are either serving life or you are serving death. You are either serving his kingdom or an opposing kingdom that will be crushed. This prayer is meant to shine a light on our own hearts to expel the darkness. As we pray for the blessings that flow from his justice and his righteousness, our hearts are further aligned with his. We can take this further by explicitly praying that we would increasingly become his instruments of justice and righteousness and peace on the earth. And as, as we pray for the blessings that are to come, as we long for them, as we set our hope not on the things of this world, but 
on the things of the world to come. Well, then we find strength to endure the suffering of this world, knowing that this is not our eternal home. Not only can we endure the pains of life as we set our our eyes on eternal life, we can enjoy an inner peace now as we longingly await what God is going to do. And so we sing verse 15. Long may he live. May gold of Sheba be given to him. May prayer be made for him continually. And blessings invoked for him all the day. May there be abundance of grain in the land. On the tops of the mountains may it wave. May its fruit be like Lebanon. May people blossom in the cities like the grass of the field. May his name endure forever, his fame as long as the sun. May people call him blessed. Or sorry, may people be blessed in him. All nations call him blessed. Long before God promised David that a king would arise from his line, whose throne would endure forever, God promised one of David's ancestors, Abraham, that through a descendant of his, quote, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Genesis 12. Through the shedding of his blood, Christ has redeemed the lives of people from every tribe and language and people and nation. Revelation 5, 9. Anyone and everyone who trusts in him for the forgiveness of their sins. And like the psalmist, we await his return when he will permanently usher in his eternal, universal kingdom of peace and prosperity. It is coming because he is coming. God keeps his promises. Closing the psalm, verse 18. Blessed be Yahweh, the God of Israel, who alone does wondrous things. Blessed be his glorious name forever. May the whole earth be filled with his glory. Amen and amen. How do we respond to a world at war? We pray. We pray for Christ's kingdom to come. We pray thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Matthew 6, verse 10. We pray, come Lord Jesus. Revelation 22, verse 20. Let us pray. Father, help us to set our hope not on the things of this world, but on the things of the world to come, that we might be strengthened to endure a world at war, that all your people who pray may be strengthened in heart, knowing what is coming. As we pray for those blessings to come, all of which flow out of the justice and righteousness of Christ our Savior, May we increasingly become your instruments of justice and righteousness and peace on earth. Father, bless the preaching of your word. In the name of Jesus Christ we pray. Amen.